All right. Well, welcome. It's Palm Sunday. A lot of times we do a little uh, Easter message. Next week we'll do that, Good Friday. And, uh, but today we're going to be back in Romans chapter 11. But it's interesting how even the story of Palm Springs, or of, of Palm Springs, <laughs> tell where I'm, my mind's at, of Palm Sunday, <laughs> how the story of Palm Sunday, um, how we know it, we know it all too well. And um, when we read that story, it really it kind of points um, to a lot of what we're going to be looking at today, and I'll mention that in a, in a few moments. But we're in this little mini-series in Romans chapter 11, No One Like God. Last week we looked at the knowledge of God, um, but I just want to read for us our text here for this morning, Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. This is kind of a doxology at the end of Romans chapter 11. And Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, Paul's been outlining for us here how God sovereignly works in and through his people and throughout history and how he designed and controlled salvation throughout history. And there has been a long period of time from Abraham to Christ where he permitted the Gentile nations to go their own way while he revealed himself mainly to the Jewish nation the Jewish people, his chosen people. But then the Jews rejected their Messiah, as we know the story all too well, and God brought a partial kind of time out, a hardening on them. And in many ways, that time of hardening even goes all the way back to the time of Moses. But it was even intensified more when they crucified their Savior, their Messiah, the sinless Son of God. At that point, while... Preserving, saving a remnant of Jews, Paul was one of them, uh, God opened the door for his mercy, his grace to the Gentile nations. Uh, the original plan was so God would take the Jewish nation and give them truth and they would share it with those who've yet to hear the truth, but they didn't do that. They hoarded it to themselves. So God says, fine, I'll take it to them myself. And so he used someone like Paul, who was a Jew, by the way, to reach out to the Gentiles with the gospel message. And now we see we live in the church age and many Gentiles are coming to Christ. Not many Jews, but many Gentiles. Some Jews, they're not totally hardened. There are some that will be saved during this time. But there will come a time when the completion of the church age is complete. Every elected person in Christ will be saved. The rapture will happen. And that will begin God's wooing Israel back to himself. He'll begin to use the salvation of the Gentile nations to make jealous his own people. And they will look at the Gentiles and say, wow, they have this wonderful relationship with God. He saved them. He's a mighty God. Why can't we have that? And they will look upon, a day will come when they will look upon him whom they pierced, the Bible says in Isaiah, and they will acknowledge their sin. And so we've been in this, and Paul says there, and so at that time all Israel will be saved. Now, no one like God, we started this last week, and I want you to turn, because it's almost a parallel passage which speaks about the mightiness of our Lord and Savior. If you turn over to Isaiah chapter 40, <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 40, and I just want to take time this morning, I don't know if we'll get through our whole outline, but uh, we'll pick it up after Easter if we don't. But Isaiah chapter 40 because it really speaks here of the greatness of God. And it's interesting that he, Isaiah begins with verse 1. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And then I want you to jump down to verse 9. Because he begins to tell how great this God who comforts is. He says, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. 
and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffer for fuel, suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot, He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stern stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded By my God, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But... They who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That text really is a side text to what we just read in Romans chapter 11. It celebrates the greatness of the God that saved us, the greatness of the God that created us. The greatness of the God who wants to know each and every one of us personally. That's why he gave his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to take on a human body, the incarnation of Christ, to live for 33 some years here on this earth, to experience everything that we experience, yet without sin, the Bible says. He was the perfect sacrifice offered on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins. Job 42.2, Job says this, I know that you can do all things... And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He's talking to God, by the way. 
We've been looking at how great our God is. There's no one like God. And I think one of the most important lessons that we can learn in our Christian life is that God is God and I am not. We have to start there. And that sounds kind of obvious, but I think we challenge that belief every time we think that God owes us something. Or that he is not treating us maybe as well as we deserve. We act against that, that thought every time we sin. Every time we violate the truth of God. Every time we grumble about our circumstances. We fly in the face of it every time we get puffed up with pride and look down upon others. Most of you remember Muhammad Ali, the great boxer. His phrase was what? I'm the greatest, right? He thought he was the greatest. I found a quote by Muhammad Ali a little later on in life. He said, I figured that if I said it enough, I would convince the world that I really was the greatest. I don't know if he even really believed that. I heard a funny story about Ali on an airplane. He was sitting in the first class section, no doubt, and the stewardess came by and said, Mr. Ali, you have to put on your seatbelt. We're about to take off. And he turned right to the stewardess in front of everybody. And he said, Superman don't wear seatbelts. Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. And the smart aleck stewardess who was pretty quick with her wits about her replied very quick to Muhammad Ali right there in front of everybody listen Superman didn't need an airplane either (laughs) after that Muhammad Ali fastened his seatbelt see pride has a way of distracting us from just how great God is we get in the way of ourselves sometimes We undermine it every time we question God's right to act as the Bible tells us he acted. We look at it and sometimes we say, that's not fair. It's not fair that he loved Jacob and he hated Esau. It's not right that he slaughtered all of those firstborn children in Egypt. God didn't even warn the Egyptian parents to put blood on their doorposts and lentils. It's not right that he commanded Israel to slaughter all the Canaanites, including their women and children. It's not merciful for him to strike Uzzah dead, who was only trying to help, but he reached out and he touched the ark. Or in modern day society, it's not right that my political candidate didn't win. See, we forget who's in charge here, beloved. See, all of those arrogant challenges to God's right to be God imply that the challenger knows more than God knows. And so the basic lesson is God is God and what? I am not. If you don't learn that, especially if you don't learn it before you stand before him in judgment, you will learn it then. You will learn it then, my friend, but it will be too late. The Bible says very clearly that all will bow the knee to Christ one day. All will confess him as Lord. It's better to do it now in this age of grace in which we live when he's offering free forgiveness rather than just judgment. I'd often quote Rick Warren, Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Church, but he definitely had it right when he began his best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life. I'm not saying that book's a great book. It has some good stuff in it. But I definitely agree with this statement. And here's what he wrote. As you begin that book, here's what it says. It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater, listen to this, than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. 
If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. That's a wonderful statement. And to understand your purpose, you must first better understand the God who created you. And so we've been looking at God's attributes. We've been looking at his perfect knowledge. Today we'll look at his profound wisdom. There's also the unsearchable judgments, the amazing ways of God. All those things are coming down the road. And we're all familiar of that story, that gospel account in Luke 19, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on what we refer to as Palm Sunday. It probably happened on a Monday. And he was hailed by the crowds, king of the Jews. Luke 19, verse 37 says, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Verse 38, it says, they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In this biblical account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, which we're very familiar with, and we've studied it over the years, so we're not going to spend a lot of time there. But you can't help see some of what we've been studying in Romans 11 right there in that passage. In verse 29 of Luke 19, it says, When he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied. Not only that, but no one has ever ridden that colt. I want you to untie it and bring it here. And by the way, if anybody asks you, what's, what are you doing? Why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. What does that speak? That speaks of the incredible knowledge of God. That God knows all. Verse 32. So those who were sent away found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, guess what happened? The owners came out and said, why are you untying this colt? Exactly like he said. And they said, the Lord has need of it. Okay. I mean, that's the incredible knowledge of God. That's a knowledge, as we looked at last week, that that knowledge should humble us. It should comfort us. It should encourage us to live for God and help us to pray each and every day. There's nothing that God does not see. There's nothing that God does not understand. There's nothing that God has to be taught. There's nothing that you can tell God that he doesn't already know. That's what just irritates me sometimes about some prayer meetings. Because it's like we're all informing God of things that he already knows. He already knows. And so when we stop and we think of this knowledge of God, today I want to ask you the question, what is God like? What is God like? I mean, we, we see that and we struggle with that because it's hard to explain because God is what? He's incomparable. We can't say, oh, he's like my great uncle Joe. Well, no. He can't really be compared to anything or with anything. And we've seen how his incommunicable attributes, such things as self-existence, self-sufficiency, and eternality, those are things that we can't possess. But he does have communicable attributes, qualities that he shares with us. One of those was knowledge. We looked at that last week. We can have some knowledge. God can grant us some knowledge. We don't have perfect knowledge like he does. His knowledge is infinitely greater, infinitely superior to ours. But when you stop and you think that God is omniscient, he knows all things. Think of it this way. God not only knows all things that were and are, he also knows all things that could be. That is, he knows 
possibilities and potentialities as well as actualities. But another thing to think about is that God is not only all-knowing, but he has incredible wisdom. Wisdom. What do we mean when we say that God is wise or all-wise? In our society, a lot of times, it's kind of a smart aleck comment. What do you think? What are you, a wise guy? Trying to be a wise guy? You ever said that to somebody when they're being smart with you? We mean that God is omniscient, of course, since God could not be all wise. He couldn't have wisdom if he didn't have knowledge first. But wisdom is more than just knowledge. It's more than even total or perfect knowledge. That's why it's broken down here in this verse as something different. A person can have a great deal of knowledge. A lot of us probably know a lot of people that have a lot of what we call head knowledge, right? But they don't know what to do with it. It's no practical use to them. We can know a lot, great deal about a lot of things and still be foolish in the way we use that knowledge. But without morality or goodness, wisdom is not wisdom. Without morality or goodness, wisdom, somebody who's a wise guy, we call that person a cunning individual. They're scheming. There's a lot of evil people in the world that are very intelligent and very cunning. And they use their intelligence of systems I found out this past week that one of my credit cards was being charged with all these things. So when I called them and they said, hey, you know, I didn't do this. And, I, and they said, well, how do you know? I said, well, look, at, they're all the same amount. $89.95, everything. Everything from facial cream to, you know, stuff for your toes and all kinds of weird stuff that I just wouldn't order. And I checked with my wife. She didn't order it either. So after the lady saw that, she goes, oh, no, this is clearly credit card fraud. We'll send you a new one. We'll close this and refund it and send you a new one. There was somebody who had the wherewithal, the knowledge to sit down and say, I'm going to hack into this guy's thing and buy stuff with his credit card information. There's whole companies that make their livings, they make their, 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 their money by protecting your what? Identity. LifeLock, other companies do that. Wisdom consists in knowing what to do with the knowledge one has and directing that knowledge to the highest and moral end. The most moral end. That's what wisdom is. The wisdom we're talking about here is knowing what to do with the knowledge one has and directing that knowledge in the highest and the most moral end. Charles Hodge says that wisdom is seen in the selection of of proper ends and of proper means for the accomplishment of those ends. It's a good definition. A.W. Tozer says this, wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. It sees the end from the beginning so that there can be no need to guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus each in proper relationship to all, and is thus able to work toward predestined goals with flawless precision. Or J.I. Packard says the same thing, essentially. He says, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Wisdom is, in fact, the practical side of moral goodness. As such, it is found in its fullness only in God. He alone is naturally and entirely and invariably wise. His wisdom ever waketh, say the hymn, says the hymn, and it is true. Wisdom, as the old theologians used to say, is, the, is his essence, just as power and truth and goodness are his essence, integral elements, that is, in his character. Omniscience, governing, omnipotence, Infinite power ruled by infinite wisdom is a biblical description of the divine character. 
See, as soon as you begin to talk along those <clears throat> lines, we see why our human wisdom does not begin to compare with God's divine wisdom. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, he says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish? What? The wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The gospel message is foolishness to the unregenerate heart. And Paul takes it a step further here in understanding God's wisdom. He wants us to really dial down on this. He wants us to see what it really means that God's wisdom far exceeds our human wisdom. And he thinks of the gospel. Talks about the riches of God's wisdom. It's not the, the, the wisdom of God displayed in the ordering of creation, as wonderful that may be, but he's talking about the wisdom in saving sinners such as you and I. That's what he's saying. And I put here three things talking about the wisdom of God in our salvation. And when you think of the wisdom of God in chapters 1 through 4, and this is just kind of a little review of where we've been in Romans, it speaks of the wisdom of God in justification. Includes the introduction to Paul, the analysis of man's sin, the statement of the gospel in Romans 3, and then proof of the doctrine of justification by faith through faith, uh, by grace through faith, from the Old Testament in Romans 4. And the central portion is Paul's statement of the gospel. He wants us to understand in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, he says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I mean, that's just an incredible thing. That's what the wisdom of God does for our justification and salvation. James Montgomery Boyce relates this little story he said there was a, a track made by atheists, uh, pronounced atheists. And he describes this, this track. He says on, on one page told the story of Abraham pointing out that on two occasions he had been willing to sacrifice the honor of his wife to save his own life. Yet the Bible calls Abraham a friend of God? After pointing this out, the track asks, what kind of God is he who can be friends with a cowardly man like Abraham? The next page told the, story, told the story of Jacob. It said that Jacob was a cheat. He cheated his brother out of his own inheritance. Yet God condescended to refer to himself by the name of Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the, tra the track asked this question, what kind of God is he who can identify with a scoundrel like Jacob. Next, the track listed Moses. Moses was a great leader, lawgiver. But early in the life, Moses had killed a man and buried his body in the sand, lest his deed be discovered. Yet God spoke to Moses face to face. He even called him his servant. What kind of God could speak face to face with a man who was a murderer? And the last of the atheist example was David, their chief witness against God's character. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then when Bathsheba was discovered to be with child by David, David arranged the death of her husband so he could marry Bathsheba and conceal his sin. Sounds like a soap opera. Yet David is called what? A man after God's own heart. And so the atheist asked this question, what kind of a heart must God have if David the adulterer and murderer was a man who was after it? 
According to the atheist reasoning, the mere existence of these stories is sufficient to prove that either God does not exist or that if he does exist, he does not have a character worth admiring. An interesting thing about that track, though, is that the atheist had a good point. (laughs) And Paul acknowledges that validity in Romans chapter 3. They were saying that Abraham, Jacob, Moses, and David were sinners. Well, you know what? They were, just like you and I are. In fact, these men were far greater sinners than the atheists even imagined. Because Jeremiah 17, 9 says that their hearts were deceitful and above all things and beyond cure, wicked. It could be said of them, Paul said it, not only of them, but of the human race in general. In Romans 3, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands, not one. There's nobody who seeks after God. There is no one who does good, not even one, the Bible says. What these men deserved from God was hell, just like you and I do. Yet for centuries, instead of sending these depraved and godless characters to hell, God had been saving them and others like them. How could he do this? I'm not saying, did God have the power to do it? Of course he did. He's all-powerful. I'm not asking the question, shouldn't God want to do it? You can understand why he would want to save sinners. He created them. But it has to do with God's justice. How could God save such sinners and at the same time remain a just and holy God? Somebody who's done so much wrong. Paul refers to that when he says God is both the just and the one who justifies the ungodly. Since God was justifying the ungodly, it would seem that for centuries there was something like, you might say, a shadow cast over the good name of God. Oh, he's given them a pass. Why isn't he carrying out judgment? That was maybe beyond our own wisdom, but it's not beyond the wisdom of God. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, says that it was in the fullness of time that God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Or in verse 26 of Romans 3, it says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement to demonstrate his justice at the present time. This means basically that God satisfied the claims of his justice by punishing the innocent Jesus for our sins. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. And so the demands of God's justice were fully met out through Christ. And that justice being fully satisfied, the love of God was then free to reach out to embrace, and to fully save the sinner. I mean, I don't know about you, but I couldn't think up a plan like that. That takes the wisdom of God. No wonder Paul cries out the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God. Well, we see God's wisdom not just in our justification, but also in our sanctification in Romans 5 through 8. It discusses the permanent nature, the persevering nature of our salvation. And it embraces the saviors, the, the sinner's need for sanctification. Well, how is God's wisdom revealed in these chapters? We saw it through justification. Why should we not go on sinning so that grace may increase? Paul asked that question in Romans 6. If we're saved by, just, by, by faith through God granting us justification and we're to be more like Christ, we're to be totally set apart for him more and more and more each and every day in our sanctification. Here's the dilemma. If salvation, if salvation is done by works, that destroys grace. No one could be saved because no one could provide sufficient works to be saved. 
or if salvation is of grace, then we must be free to sin greatly because they're all forgiven. You see the kind of dilemma. And God solves this problem by showing us that we are never justified apart from being regenerated or being made alive in Christ. This means that Christians have been given a new nature. And that this new nature, the very life of Christ, is within us. And that will begin to produce good works, fruit, corresponding with the character of God. It's the only real proof that we have someone saved, if you stop and think about it, other than their profession. Just as we've been joined together with Adam by our natural descent from him, so that when Adam sinned, we all sinned, the Bible says. And when Adam was judged by the penalty of death for sin, so too we were all judged. Those who have put their faith or trust in Christ, those who have been saved by the Savior, are now joined to Christ, the Bible says. And we're justified not by our own work, but by his work on the cross. And we've been made spiritually alive in him. See, if we're truly saved, beloved, we're going to be different than the people we were before. And because this is God's work, it's not our work, it means that we cannot undo it and somehow go back to being what we were before. And since we cannot go back, the only way is to move forward. That's why in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, speaking of sanctification, Paul says in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Or in Romans chapter 8, we saw in verses 1 through 4, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh in a sacrifice for sin. That means that salvation is utterly of grace, But then you follow it up and it says he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. I mean, who could think up a gospel like this? Only God. I mean, I'd just say, oh, you know what? You're all going to hell. (laughs) I don't have time for this. You know, I mean, but, but God is so gracious over and over and over again. We would never do it the way God did it. Because, first of all, we don't naturally hold grace and works together. Because if we emphasize morality, as some people do, we begin to think that somehow we can be saved by our good works, and that's what we strive to do. And by doing that, we, we, we set aside grace. But if, on the other hand, if we emphasize grace, knowing that we cannot possibly be saved by our inadequate and polluted works... We have a natural tendency to do away with works entirely and say, well, it doesn't matter what you do. And you slide down the slippery slope of antinomianism, which basically says, hey, you know what? It's all covered by God's grace. Do whatever you want. If we hold to grace, we repudiate works. And if we hold to works, we repudiate grace. But God has devised a gospel that is entirely and completely of grace and yet produces the most exceptional works in those who have been saved. No wonder Paul says, well, the depth of the riches, the wisdom of God. It's incredible. And not only that, but thirdly here, the wisdom of God is displayed in human history in chapters 9 to 11. The problem is that God made special salvation promises to the Jewish people. And yet, in spite of these promises, the majority of Jews are not responding to the gospel. They're not being saved. And so the question is, well, has the purpose of God failed? And Paul answers the question, no. A thousand times no. Paul, God will be faithful to his chosen people, Israel. And even though for this short period of time here in the church, these promises are being extended Two Gentiles, and he's adding Gentiles into the fold, that will provoke Israel to jealousy and bring them back 
to faith in their Messiah eventually. I mean, who could think of a plan like that? I'm going to choose Israel, but then they're not going to listen, so I'm going to set them on the sideline, and I'm going to start saving Gentiles, and that's going to cause Israel to be jealous. And then when the Gentiles are all saved, because of Israel's disbelief, then I'll start working on the Jews again, and they will be saved. It's just amazing. We can't even understand it apart from biblical revelation. I mean, it's hard. Well, what does the Bible say about wisdom? What does the Bible say about wisdom? I just wrote a a couple things down here, a couple verses that you can um, refer to. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 17, Paul writes this, Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. So we can have some wisdom. This is something that God can grant us. He, he, he gives us wisdom. We don't have entire complete wisdom like God, just like we don't have complete knowledge like God. But he writes there, making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we should be all about asking God for wisdom. Or Colossians 4, 5 says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. It doesn't say be a wise guy in the way that you act toward outsiders. It says be wise. Remember, understanding what wisdom is, the application of the knowledge that you possess, applying that for the best moral good. Make the most, it says, of every opportunity. See, when you look at that verse and you're out and you're shopping and you get stuck in the grocery line... (laughs) behind somebody who just doesn't have the payment ready and they don't have the bags ready and you're in a hurry. You know, what's the Bible say? Make the most of every opportunity. You need to be aware. Who, who's around you? Maybe you just need to chit-chat a little bit. I mean, the other day I was going through the store there at Key Market and went through the line and, and uh, came up to the checker. I said, how you doing? And she goes, you know what? Would you, would you just pray for our family? We just lost a loved one. And she started to just unload. And sharing things, you know. And I thought, wow, you know. And and I'm thinking, okay, what does it call you to do? Make the most of every opportunity. So you pray for that person. You you, you take time to to at least let them know. If you can't do it right then, you will pray for them. Or in James chapter 1 verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, where do you go? He should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. If you don't know how to apply the knowledge that you have, ask God. We're to seek wisdom, but where can this be found? Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. This doesn't mean a fear that speaks of someone cowering in a corner, corner, afraid that they're going to get hit with a stick or something, but it, ha- it speaks of a fear that is an awesomeness. You're just in awe of who God is. It's a healthy respect. And you have to begin there. Secondly, you have to begin with understanding the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 98 says that your commands make me wiser than my enemies. Your commands, the word of God. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul urged his young pastor friend Timothy, his young disciple, to continue in the study of, of God's inspired scriptures because the reason is, is they are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. When's the last time you spoke to someone who was not a Christian and rather than give them a slick little track or give them whatever, encourage them to read the Bible. Go read the Bible. You really want salvation? Read the Bible. That's what they should be doing. That's what the Word of God says. They, it's, why, it's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. You don't have to give them a ton of books. Give them the Gospel of John. Let them read through 1 John. Then sit down and ask them, do you have any questions about what you read? 
See, if they're sincerely searching, they're going to be willing to go to the source that's the only one that has the answers. And if they're not, if they're just playing a game with you, then so be it. You save yourself the money. You don't have to give away all these tracks. But always ask them, do you, do you have a copy of the Bible? Will you be willing to read it before I even answer your question? And, and establish that fact. See, the problem is we don't really believe in God's wisdom. Because if we really believe that God is all wise, and if he really wanted, if we really wanted to be wise ourselves, we would do just that. Martin Luther said this about wisdom. He says, we are accustomed to admit freely, freely that God is more powerful than we are, but not that he is wiser than we are. To be sure, we say that he is, but when it comes down, when it comes to a showdown, we do not want to act on what we say. See, from our perspective, when you honestly look at it, the workings of God are mysterious, they're irregular. We want events to run in a certain way. We want the little train to go down the track without missing a without missing a bump, you know, it's just perfect. Everything's in its order. Very predictable. That's not how God works. And somehow when that happens, when God takes the sidetrack instead of going down the main rail in our life and we throw our hands up and go, what are you doing? We think somehow we can do things better than God, the one who created us. And what that means finally is that we don't trust God. To order both, not only the means, but the ends of his plan in our life. So we take things in our own hands. Sure, God says this, God says that, but you know what? I think it's best that I do it this way. And we see, even within the church, people applying the wisdom, the foolish wisdom, the human wisdom, to such a sacred thing as the matter of salvation. I mean, God has ordered all these things together perfectly for his good plan. And when you're speaking of the matters of salvation, think of all the details involved with all this. You're not just talking about a year's plan. I mean, some of you are into planning. You know, you plan seminars, you do this, you do that. Think if you had to plan the whole universe. And not just universe, but all the other ones. I mean, think if, you know, I mean, when it talks about the greatness of God, I mean, his hand just spans the universe. All the water is in his hand, it says, in the hollow of his hand we read. I mean, I don't know if you've ever flown across the Pacific Ocean, but I have a pastor friend that's on a cruise right now to Hawaii, and he's probably like in the middle of the the area they just left yesterday, but I'm thinking, wow, that's a long way on a boat. Because there's nothing out there, nothing And yet God holds all that water plus all the other oceans in the hollow of his hand. See, that's a little far more complicated, you might say, than the details of our little puny lives. (laughs) And when something happens, we throw our hands up and freak out. Oh, God, you don't know what's going on. Yes, he does. He knows exactly what's going on. So we need to kind of set aside that game that we play and we need to start seeking wisdom that's in the bible where alone it may be found and seize every opportunity to live for god and witness to our all-wise god and heavenly father well two more things here quickly the unsearchable judgments of god not only the knowledge and the wisdom but the unsearchable judgments of god He says, how unsearchable are his judgments? Judgments or decrees have to do with God ordering of everything that happens. Flowing from his infinite knowledge and his perfect wisdom. He never makes a mistake. He never makes an error. Charles Hodge says says this, as of old the ruler was also the judge. 
To judge often means to rule. Therefore, the same word is used for the decisions of the judge and the decrees of the ordinances of the ruler. So whether you're speaking of decrees or you're speaking of judgments, there's a couple things here about these judgments that we see are very clear. First of all, they're all for God's glory. They're all for God's glory. Every judgment that God hands down is for his glory. We don't think of that. We think, well, it's for our needs. God's mainly concerned about us. Remember what I said? It's not about you. (laughs) It's about God's glory. And if something difficult has to happen in your life for his glory, guess what? It's going to happen. doesn't mean God's punishing you. Sometimes people, Christians even, they, something happens, they get sick or diagnosed with, oh, you know, I don't know what, you know, I don't know what I've been doing. It's, well, maybe I haven't been doing anything. You know, are we so quickly to forget, look at something like Job. I mean, he was the most righteous guy on the face of the earth. I mean, I wouldn't want to walk in his shoes. I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't want to go down that path. But you know what? Hey, whatever God wants. Because God is Right. And whatever happens will be for his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands, Psalm 19 says. Why did he create the heavens and the earth? Not for our enjoyment, to display his glory. Why did Jesus come into the world? The answer, we say, well, to save us from our sins. No, that's not why. I mean, that's part of it, but that's not the complete reason. But we stop there. The greater answer was given by Jesus himself in John 17, 4, where he says, I, brought, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. He came for the glory of God. What would the saints be saying when they stand before the throne of God in heaven? Oh, God, you've been so good for us. Oh, thank you for this The Bible tells us what we will be doing. Revelation 5.13, it says, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. See, we're stuck in this self-centered, me-centered society and life in which we live. And we need to shake ourselves from that and realize that God has a judgment, God has a plan, it's for his glory. Secondly, all the decrees and judgments of God are one. This was interesting when I studied this because I never thought of this. But when you look at in different areas in the Bible where it speaks of God's judgments or God's decrees, the word, even in the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, the word is singular. It's singular. And the reason is is because God does not do things in sequence. See, that's how we think. Okay, I plan out my week. Monday, I'm going to do this. Tuesday, I'm going to do this. That's not how God works. Well, you say, why? Because God's not, he transcends time. (laughs) There is no tomorrow to God. Do you understand that? There's no yesterday. It's just amazing when you stop and think about it. He sees all things as a whole from the beginning. And what God foresees is only what he has foreordained or planned. Psalm 2, verse 7, it says, I will proclaim the decree, decree, singular, of the Lord. Romans 8, verse 28, we quote this a lot. We know that God in all things works for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. No, purpose. Or in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, singular, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, the man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Charles Hodge, in his systematic theology, wrote this, it is inconsistent with the idea of absolute perfection that the purposes of God are successive or that he ever purposes what he did not originally intend or that one part of his plan is independent from the other parts. 
It is one scheme and therefore one purpose. Thirdly, the decrees are eternal. God's decisions, we think, are made in time. Well, they're not. That's why God can say, you know what? Before the foundation of the the world, I chose you. Before the foundation of the world, I set my son on this path to the cross. Also, the decrees are wise. We've already seen that. God's perfect wisdom. The psalmist says in Psalm 104, verse 24, How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. They're not only wise, they're also free. They're free. Even when formed under the influence of other minds and circumstances, our purposes are also free. The reason why men and women do not seek God in Romans 3.11, it says, is because they do not want to. Not because they're physically incapable of it. They're dead. They don't want to do it. We have to stop and realize that, you know what? God does not drag people into heaven. Pink says this, A.W. Pink. He says, God was alone when he made his decrees. He was free to decree or not to decree and to decree one thing and not another. This liberty we must ascribe to him who is supreme, independent, and sovereign in all his doings. That's why Paul says here in Romans 3.34, what, who understands the mind of the Spirit of God? Who has instructed him as his counselor? Who did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Or who taught him the right way? That's in Isaiah 40. We read that. They're also absolute and unconditional. And we'll close with this. They're absolute and unconditional. It speaks to the immutability of God, the unchangeableness of God. God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't wake up one day and say, oh, you know, sorry, I made this mistake. The psalmist says in Psalm thirty-three, eleven, the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 17, that God does not change like the shifting shadows. Isaiah 46.10 says, My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. And lastly, the decrees are effective. They are effective. Not one thing that God wills or one thing that God's desire decrees or his judgments will prove to be ineffective. And that should allow us to rest a little bit. And that's why they says there that they're unsearchable. You can't be searched to the bottom. That's what it's speaking. It's talking about the depth of something. They're unsearchable. And I just think it's interesting as we go through these in chapter, in verse 33 there, then he begins to ask these questions. Who has, my, who has known the mind of the Lord? What's that speak to? That speaks to God's knowledge, right? We spoke about that. Who has been his counselor? What's that speak to? That speaks to God's wisdom. Or who has given a gift to him that he might need repaid? What does that talk about? That talks about the riches of God that we started out with. So when you stop and think about the God that we serve, beloved, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that, you know what? He's God. We're not. There's no one like him. And it's best that we get our act together and understand what his will and purpose is for our lives. And when you stop and you think on that Palm Sunday when Jesus rode on that donkey into Jerusalem, first of all, it was the wrong animal. It should have been a white horse because all his disciples, everybody thought that he was going into Jerusalem to just clean up with the Romans. He's going to free them. Finally, it's come, this time. The Messiah has come. We're going to take this place by storm. Even though he told them he's got to go and die, they didn't get it. Why? Because of their pride. They didn't want to get it. When he rode in and people began to realize, wait a minute, what's going on here? He's not getting an army together. He's, they're, they're, they're capturing him. Whoa, now they're going to kill him? 
Can you imagine throughout the week all those people claiming to praise their Messiah as he rode in there, and yet by Friday their palm branches were thrown down and they were ready to crucify him, exchange his life for the life of a murderous thief. Father, we pray today that you would help us to understand more fully just how great you are as our God. Help us never to take that for granted. Lord, we can't completely understand it, but we can just tap into a a tip of the iceberg as we look at your knowledge. We look at your wisdom. We look at your judgments, your decrees, and even the way you do things. They're just amazing. It's, it's, It's beyond anything that we could ever conceive. And yet, Lord, we get all, all of our emotions in a fix when something doesn't go right in our life, thinking somehow that you've forgotten us or you're, you're not watching over us or where is God? I just don't feel his presence. But you say you're there and you're overseeing our lives just like you always have. And Father, we can take a deep breath and realize that you know what? The God that saves us is the God that will keep us. That as a child of God, nothing will happen to us outside of his sovereign will. Whether that's good or whether that's bad in our mind, it's all for your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that you would change our heart in this area. Help us to see that your knowledge and your wisdom can flow through us to a certain degree. That we can accept your judgments and your paths even though they may at times be hard. Lord, I pray for each heart that's here today. Lord, I pray that you would, if there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that, Lord, that you would help them to acknowledge, show them that they're a sinner. Help them to realize that there's no no other place to go to for, for, for forgiveness of sin. You don't need to go to the pastor. You don't need to go to the priest. You don't need to go to the church. You need to go to Christ. You need to come to the cross. And you lay your sins down there, then you'll never pick them up again because they will be forgiven by his sacrifice that he laid down his life for you. If that's a desire of your heart this morning, I pray that you'd cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me the need that I have for you in my life. And as believers, I just pray this week that we would be faithful to the call of the gospel and be willing to share with those around us the wonderful message of grace and forgiveness that we have in Christ. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.